Welcome to my podcast, The Data Optimist, which explores how technology and data is being used to benefit global society. In this episode, we examine how technology is being used to deal with humanitarian problems. In the past two decades, approximately 3.5 billion people around the world have been affected by humanitarian crises, which have displaced populations and left millions struggling in the aftermath. The United Nations has highlighted that the benefits of technology are unevenly distributed between countries and within societies. Technology has revolutionized most areas of the private sector, but it has not seen the same take-up in the humanitarian sector. This is, however, slowly changing. Increasingly, the humanitarian sector is adopting new technologies to tackle issues. For example, drone technology is being used to help monitor the emergency response after hurricanes or earthquakes, by mapping areas that are cut off from aid and to identify populations in need. The potential of 3D printing has also been explored. In some refugee camps, it is hoped that 3D printers can be used to make equipment for disabled refugees. And the use of mobile phone applications, or apps, is increasing to address a range of issues. Today I speak with Richard Strachan, who is the Managing Director of Three-Sided Cube, Three-Sided Cube is an app development and digital product company that is driven by using technology to change lives for the better. They collaborate with a number of international organizations to develop apps. Richard, welcome. Hey, hi, how are you doing? Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Before we talk about some specific apps you have been developing, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in this field? Uh, so I guess um, a, a bit about me. Um, I've my I've been working in digital now for twenty one years, I guess, since I uh, kind of left university. And my my initial kind of foray into the digital world was in the world of marketing. So it was building websites and doing email marketing campaigns and that kind of stuff back in the early two thousands, which was great, and that was all uh, kind of uh, good fun. Um, and then, but advertising is, you know, by its kind of nature, quite, um, uh, it's an interesting world and it's kind of uh, full of very passionate and creative people. But I, um, I had a bit of an epiphany um, one evening where I was um, working on a particularly kind of stressful project and it was uh, quite a stressful environment and we were uh, we had a deadline to hit and it was all about kind of um, helping teenagers get fake internet points for their uh, video game and it was kind of like god if i'm gonna if i'm gonna do this kind of (laughs) if i'm gonna deal with these kinds of levels of stress i should be doing it for something a bit more worthwhile perhaps so um, that kind of led me to um, to pivot and, and do the work we do here at Cube, which is we're a very mission-led organisation and we want to use, uh, you know, we understand the power of technology and the power that software has to, to make a difference in the world. Um, and we want to use it for, for good wherever possible and try and, uh, try and have a real positive impact. So, so yeah, that's kind of the potted history of, of, of what, what I've been doing and, and where we're at now. Now, most of us know what apps are, but are somewhat mystified as to how they are actually created. How exactly does an app work? Simplify this for those of us who are less technical. (laughs) Okay, so, um, I mean, basically an app is, um, it's a piece piece of software that's installed on the phone. And that's where it's kind of different from a 
uh, from a website. So with a website, you browse to it in your uh, web browser and you can get data from a, um, a server and it, it's kind of but all of the, it's very, it's, it's very, the technology on the device, on your phone or your laptop is quite thin. All of the information is held remotely on the web service. With mobile apps, the, uh, a lot of the data can be stored on the device. Um, and what that means is that whilst you do still have kind of back-end and front-end, by back-end, sorry, I mean a server component, which is the bit that sits in the cloud, mm-hmm. um, a large part of the, uh, the you know, the, the kind of software and the data can be held on device. So it's sort of more secure um, or can be more secure because it's the, the devices are quite secure these days. So I guess that's the sort of key difference between apps and websites um, is that an app is stored on the device and is installed onto the device itself. Um, and that gives you a whole load of um, flexibility um, and uh, kind of you can use a lot of the power of the, of the devices themselves to do some quite interesting things with the applications. Does that answer your question? Or? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And, and does it mean that you can be more creative as well, as well as being flexible? Or? I, you know, you, you, there's a bit, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's, a, there's always a kind of a bit of a debate. To be totally honest with you these days, there's a lot that you can do online um, that you can do um, in an app as well. The, the internet's kind of, the web browser technologies come on particularly in the last kind of five years, leaps and bounds. And there's a whole load of stuff you can do um, in a web browser that um, you used to only be able to do um, with a kind of native, what's called a native application is one that's actually built um, for, for the device. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's less, um, uh, actually sort of technically, there's less barriers these days. Uh, what's interesting is the difference psychologically um, between browser-based stuff and uh, apps. So people tend to feel more ownership of an app because it's something they've downloaded and it's on their device. They trust it more than they will necessarily trust the website because a website, people, there's a sort of psychology, psychological thing of a website is somewhere I visit and I go to mm-hmm. and, it, you know, it's open and it's out there kind of thing, whereas an app is something that I've, I've called to me and I've got my device and it's secure on there and I've, you know, um, it's, it feels sort of more personal, if you like. So yeah, that makes different sense. different use cases for, for different things. So if you're, if you're looking for news, for instance, most people are happy with a website to go and, you know, consume their news or whatever. If you're looking at um, your personal banking, a lot of people would rather do that on an app because it's, it feels more secure. It's not to say websites can't be secure, but apps feel more. How long does it take to build an app? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, for, for us, typically, it, we, we would say, look, it's from kind of the initial conversations, we can get something in the app store. It takes about three months. Um, and then, you know, but it could, it depend, It really does depend on what it is you're building. So kind of three to six months is about... Um, how long it takes uh, if you if we deal with a client um, from the initial conversations and sort of the you know the the, the agreement to to get going. Funnily enough, we we you can do it a lot quicker than that. Um, that's sort of practically how long it takes, given all of the um, sort of 
you know, sign-offs and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, one of our biggest, most successful platforms that we built, that we built um, which is the Hazards platform, which uh, we built for the American Red Cross, for the initial meeting to actually getting it live in the App Store was six weeks. So mm-hmm. you can do it a lot quicker. Just sort of practically speaking, it tends to take sort of, sort of you could give yourself about three months, really, when you've gone through all the design processes and that kind of stuff. Well, that probably leads me to my next question, which was about um, the emergency pla- preparedness platform that you developed. Is that the same thing as the Hazards platform for the Red Cross? Could you tell us more about that? Because that, you know, that's particularly of, of interest, particularly for those who work in the sustainable development and humanitarian sector, um, about how you know these apps can be used in ways that um, can help in some, you know, in a crisis or whether it be climate crisis or, or, or other. Yeah, so the the, um, the hazards platform or the prep apps or the preparedness platform, we call it a million different things. Um, so the way that how that came about is we were working with the American Red Cross um, and we started working with them actually delivering first aid information and training via a, a mobile app. Um, and we got speaking to their uh, disaster preparedness uh, team. And what they were doing was um, they, when they were... Uh, the, the biggest challenge that those guys have is getting people to actually prepare for disasters uh, because in what they call blue sky times, nobody really worries about it and they don't care. No one really cares about a hurricane until you're in the middle of it, then you really care about it. But they're really what they're trying to do is get people pre- prepared before the fact. Um, so what they would do is once they know that a hurricane's gonna um, going to hit, uh, they would print out a load of information and, and data and flyers and stuff, take it to where they thought it was going to hit, distribute all that information, telling people how to get prepared um, and trying to um, uh, you know, help them get shelter after the things hit. That would be great, but the weather being the weather, it would move over time. And, you know, like a, you know, a week later, that it looks like hurricane's going to hit somewhere else because they know that it, when it spins up out in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, a good few weeks before. Um, so they would have to then print out no more stuff and go and deliver it. And it was a really inefficient and kind of um, old money way of uh, working. Um, so what, what we, we it, it, this was one of those classic things where it kind of came up over over a conversation over lunch, funnily enough, that we were talking about it. Um, and we were like, well, look, you know, you've got in your pocket, um, we've all got a device that knows where we are and knows, and we can send messages to it. So we can just, if, they, if someone has an app, we can warn them, dependent on a location they're monitoring or exactly where they are, that there's going to be something hitting them and this is what they need to do. So if you give them a more sort of personalised um, experience and you're not constantly printing out and driving around and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's sort of where the preparedness uh, apps came from. So um, we built that out. And as I said, it was sort of from that initial conversation to actually going in the store was six weeks. Um, and it was lucky we did it so fast because then we got it in the store and a week later, uh, Hurricane Sandy um, was was hitting. So Goodness. and that was yeah, huge. Um, huge disaster. Did the app take up really help that? I mean, were people able to evacuate? Yeah, well, or? yeah, I mean that meant that everybody suddenly wanted information about, you know, uh, hurricanes and uh, the it got I think it was like the next weekend it had a quarter of a million downloads and was number one in the store and all that kind of stuff and got um, highlighted by um 
uh, Apple. So, and that was a really fun weekend, you can imagine, because we weren't sort of prepared for quite that upset. <laughs> so it did mean that, um, you know, we, we sort of spent a good 72 hours, all of us in the office, keeping the servers up and running and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, now that platform has been developed. So when you say how long does something take to build, so that was six weeks, but we have been working on that pretty much full-time ever since then. Uh, yeah, that was my next question, actually. Once, you, once you've built it, 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 that's not the end of the story. I mean, do you have to keep working no. on it and tinkering on it? or, or Absolutely, yeah. You can't, you know, and we, we sort of say this to, to people all the time, you, you know, you don't build something and then that's it. That's, unfortunately, that's not sort of how it works. And when you're thinking about it and budgeting for it, you need to accept that that's, that's true, that, you know, you are going to need to continuously improve it. And, and how you do that is, um, there's, there's, there's lots of different ways of doing it. If you're a product house like, I don't know, Facebook or Google, they'll update their apps on a weekly basis. You know, that's, it's unlikely that most people can sort of um, afford to do that. But um, certainly kind of, you know, you're probably looking at a couple of times a year you want to be releasing updates to it just because the world changes mm. and people expect different things. Yeah, but also so I, mean, I guess the, the savings that they make in you know, different resources, right? They're not pre- preparing the materials and handing them out and going places that, that the money spent on that yeah. would go elsewhere. And, you know, you get uh, a lot of efficiency and productivity out of it. So, you know, yeah, the budget because, changes. Because you can get that exposure. So, the you know, the Hazards platform serves tens of millions of people now. Um, and we send millions and millions of alerts. You know, when, when Harvey um, hit the Caribbean and the uh, Southern States, two, three years ago now, we did something like 90 million alerts over a, a week-long period. So it's a lot of information and data that you can disseminate at a fairly, you know, cost-effective um, way because, the, you know, the cost for each message is virtually zero. Mm. So actually, you can really scale it. It's, it. The scale, the issues arrive in different parts and bottlenecks and stuff like that. So, but, you know, the, the cost-wise, once you kind of, going, you can get real, real scale, which you just couldn't sensibly do um, yeah. in a non-digital way. You um, also so developed a, a blood donation tracking app for the American Red Cross. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we another, yeah, so we, we, work, we work with them across different sort of uh, parts of the organisation. And again, this was another, um, actually of some work, we, the work we do, because <clears throat> we built the hazards platform, um, and then that got picked up by the um, uh, Global Disaster Preparedness Centre, which is their international arm. And that then got uh, translated into 55 languages and it's all over the globe. It's 87 countries um, that the, the first aid and the hazard stuff is in. So that gave us some real, real breadth, which was kind of amazing when, you know, that was sort of happening. There was sort of 15 of us based in, a, in an office here in Bournemouth and just to sort of blow our minds a bit you kind of have to pinch yourself that you were having that kind of um uh, that sort of level of impact around the world it was sort of amazing um, T- tell us a bit more about the detail of the, of the um the first day the blood donation tracking app what is it exactly is it for so what so yes yeah, so what the what the uh, the blood donor app is in the in the states um the if you want to donate blood you do it to the red cross they do about 50 percent of it um, and then, you know, there's, there's private, it's all private healthcare, so it's private organisations that, um, that take the donations and then provide the hospitals with them. Um, and what the Blood Donor Act does 
kind of uh, it's a really straightforward thing basically you book your you give you put your details in so what your blood type is etc and then it it surfaces you um, local appointments and um, that you can have and then encourages you to to take that appointment it's all pretty kind of straightforward stuff um, and then um, you go to your appointment and then after the fact you can actually track your blood uh, journey, which is kind of the, the sort of really powerful part to it. So there's a couple of really powerful bits to it, but the blood journey is really kind of um, really cool because what it does is it tells you your blood is now at the hospital, your blood is being tested, your blood is being used. Um, and it's at that point when your blood has been used that we get the highest level of rebooking, which is what we're really after. Because you're showing people, you're surfacing the impacts that your, um, your, your appointments had. Um, and there's a whole load of other kind of, so that's made, that does sort of, as I've said, that makes it sound very, very straightforward, which is because the whole point of the technology is to make this as simple as possible. But actually under the hood, there's a whole load of complexity around um, how um, certain blood types um, can only donate after certain periods of time, depending on your sort of health history and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a sort of, um, a load of kind of uh, data and information underneath it all that's bubbling away, which is surfacing you the right appointments that are convenient to you. Um, and also the reminders how that works. There's a, there's a lot of kind of um, optimization that goes on about making sure that you're getting the, uh, the, the reminders at a time which are good for you to make sure you turn up. Right. And so the idea is that you make the whole thing as simple as humanly possible for somebody and you obfuscate all of that complexity away so it's happening under the hood. Because actually it's, it's quite a complex, um, like the testing plans for it are kind of crazy. But from a user point of view, it's the most easy, straightforward thing in the world. I do, it, it pops up and says, hey, what, do you want this particular appointment? Right. And it knows it's, it's like similar appointments you've had. Do you say yes? You, go to your, you get reminded of your appointment when you want to be reminded. You turn up, you see your bud, and then you see the journey for it. And you're like, wow. Well, that was great. I'm gonna, you know, you will do that again. And it's now they book half of all of the appointments. That's about half of all the appointments that the Red Cross book get booked through the app. So it's more successful than their website. It's more successful than their uh, phone, and they're uh, just dropping campaigns as well. So it's a really, really powerful tool for them now. Uh, we do about uh, it's around a quarter of a million appointments a month that get booked through it as well. Gosh, so, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it, over the last sort of 18 months, actually since the, the, the pandemic saw a real upswing in people that wanted to book appointments, because um, there was just generally in all of the, all of the different clients we have, we, we, we saw anybody where there was any volunteering, whether you're donating money or blood or whatever it was, there was a real uptick um, when the pandemic hit of people wanting to help. Yeah, I think we saw that across lots of different sectors, didn't we? Um, yeah. Of, you know, yeah, just absolutely. the amount of people who were incredible, actually, you know, volunteering for all sorts of things during the pandemic. It was um, yeah. quite heartwarming, actually, just to see, you know, how um, the kind of community spirit um, in such a difficult time. It was amazing. 
but we think it's it's a very um, you know, we do we, they book a lot of appointments, but what's really key is the show rate is very high, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a problem with their other channels that the show rate was always quite low because people would say that they would book the appointment but then not worry about going. But because we can remind people because it's on their phone and you've got the person's in control of it but we can also in control of when we can communicate with them to remind them to go, the show rate. Um, the average is about is about 55% and ours is about 87 so. Gosh, it shows, um, it shows, isn't it? Just if you make things easy and, and convenient and, uh, you know, the right timing for things, it can absolutely. make such a difference to how something works. Now, you create right. apps across all sectors. I know that from your website and you've, you've done some really, really interesting things. Um, but what are the main challenges in creating apps specifically for the humanitarian sector? would you say so i think um, humanitarian is really it's 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 kind of, yeah it's interesting and it's not it's it's sort of a um the, you know the main challenge you've got across all of any any of the any type of design um uh problems that you're trying to solve is really understanding what the what the end users and give, giving the end users value that's really the kind of big challenge that you, you always have is why are they going to get involved in this and understand that. Um, and in the humanitarian um, section, so we're doing some work at the moment with the um, UNHCR, so mm-hmm. the United Nations Refugee um, Council. And what we're trying to do there is, um, uh, it's, it, it's a kind of, I can't go into too much detail about it because it's, it's sort of early days, but we've got two different use cases for it. So for us, the challenge for us really is understanding from a refugee perspective, what is it that's going to be providing value to them in this product? Mm-hmm. You know, we are not refugees. We're, we're you know, um, 60 guys in uh, in, in Bulba, not just in Bournemouth these days, but do you know what I mean? With, yeah. with, so understanding... Um, really understanding what the value we would dr- deliver to a um, uh, you know a refugee is kind of really interesting because we can. It's easy for us to understand what, for instance, the UN thinks that a refugee but, you know will get value out of it. But with anything, you need to actually speak to the people on the ground and understand what what that what value they're going to get out of it. Um, and that's quite that's just logistically quite a challenging thing to do. Do they have access to, I mean, clearly they do, they're developing apps, but how is that sort of short form met? Or, you know, is that yeah, something that's really, the gap that's it's played? It's really kind of interesting. There's sort of, there's sort of an automatic assumption that, um, you know, the, the like, like the South, really, the Southern Hemisphere, uh, you know, do not have um, access to mobile technology. And, and they do. There's quite a large um, uh, penetration not with the like latest kind of uh, iPhones necessarily, um, but there's you know there's a huge uh, secondary market in the iPhone thing, and particularly with Android, you get very cheap handsets, and a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the southern hemisphere actually skipped laptops and desktop, mm. and their first digital experience was uh, mobile, um, and there's a whole world of interesting. Uh, sort of ethical ethics around that and how they're granted access to uh, the internet and how big corporates are trying to control that. So if you Google and Facebook and, um, I mean, even Elon Musk is trying to do it at the moment with Starnet stuff, you know, they're trying to grant 
access to the internet across the world, mm. which is very democratizing and is a re- you know, I'm not trying to suggest that's nothing but a good thing, but that is unregulated and it well, it's regulated by them. So uh, that's kind of an interesting sort of ethical thing. But, yeah, I mean I think yeah. even I think even in the developed world, I mean this whole sort of, you know, the competition aspects of the big technology companies basically, yeah. you know, having occupying the entire market. I mean it's like different and we have more choice. Uh, but you know, but at the same time, those are the companies that have the technical skills, the investment, that you know, the, the sheer yeah. size. It's it's a it's a really tricky um, question, yeah, really. Yeah. And but it's interesting. So you, so so just to understand it for, for the listeners. So uh, the refugees in general would have a phone, generally maybe an Android rather than you know obviously the, the most expensive. Or an older, yeah. And you have no problems in terms of the technical side of delivering your apps to you know older devices, multiple devices. I mean, how would, does that, does that work? I mean, it's, it's, it it depends how far back you go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they tend to be fairly, um, uh, you know, they tend to be fairly, fairly well, well functioning, but you do, you just have to, you just have to understand it when you're, um, when you're delivering, developing the technology, the point some of the complexity comes in understanding what the, what is available in different markets, mm-hmm. um, but we do because we have got kind of we do get we've got data from as I said earlier on we're sort of in eighty seven different countries so we've got pretty good some some data ourselves on uh, the type of um, devices that are available to people but it is kind of just is getting access to understand what those you know, the, the types of devices and, and the type of, and again, it's what that, you know, the value that we're, we're trying to give to them and what they need. Um, yes, I imagine, of, I mean, for the refugee, I mean, the, the, the amounts that I've read about it really just shows that you know, the, in, in the camps, they, they just need access to information, don't they? I mean, they don't know what's going on and they, they want to understand what's going on, obviously. And yeah. um, so this seems like a, you know, an amazing way to be able to give people information but I suppose yeah. what you're saying is you need the information about them before you can sort of give them yeah, the information you, you that they space. need it's this whole yeah. process interestingly as well what what it can um uh one of the one of the we, we worked on a project for um again for providing uh, cash in emergencies so mm-hmm. that was that was around Actually, and it was, it was sort of an interesting journey we went on with that particular one because what we were trying to do was train um, volunteers who were put out in the field to uh, disseminate cash into emergency situations. Um, because actually, if you go and start delivering first aid um, uh, packages or water or whatever, what often happens is you then create this black market economy and that where people, what they really need is money. So what the... Um, what the large NGOs do more often than not now is actually they will go and deliver people cash to, so that they can actually get what they uh, need with yeah, straight they, away. That, it, and it's that's also more um, what, I'm trying to think of the right word empowering for the for the individual, so it doesn't feel as much like just a handout. They're in control of helping themselves out of the situation. Um, but sort of training up volunteers on how to deal with that kind of thing, and then all, and then and then what you look at is okay, well, what. Because cash in itself, if you actual cash, you know, pounds, well, not pounds and pence, but you know, currency, mm. it's quite a dangerous thing to start dishing out to, um, you know, people in a, in a threatened environment um, because it's a, it can be quite a, 
you know, the, the camps can be quite dangerous places as well. So it's sort of digital equivalence to that and how you can um, dis- distribute value or get actual value in terms of uh, monetary value um, via, you know, cards or, again, mm. that people can use. It's, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting world. Where do you see the opportunities to advance the use of apps when it comes to humanitarian needs? So I think... I think the real, I think the opportunities are in the fact that you can, uh, at a sort of macro level, what's great about um, what's great about the fact that you can put the, you know, um, somebody who's in a in a trouble situation or who's in a very difficult situation, if they've got a if they've got a mobile device, you've got access to a whole load of power and technology in your hand there, which is actually quite levelling. Um, a project that we do, um, which isn't necessarily in the humanitarian world, it's it's to do with, it kind of is, it covers kind of, both things. We, we do some work with um, the World Resource Institute and we um, have an app that um, helps uh, people in, um, in uh, the, the rainforests or the jungles to monitor deforestation. So it sends them an alert and says, we think this area is being deforested. Can you go and check that out and report on it? And what it does um, is when we originally built it, we were kind of expecting it to be used by um, like government organisations. So, um, you know, the, or NGOs who were working out in the field or, or land rangers or forest rangers that were kind of officially sort of um, registered, but actually... As it turned out, when we were when we got into it, and it's been going for three, four years now, um, the people that actually used it are the indigenous people that live in the forest because they care about it. Mm. The, the sort of official guys, to be honest, they sort of know where the deforestation is happening. They're aware of it and they don't mind it because of corruption or crime or whatever that would be. Um, whereas the indigenous tribes, they really care about it because it's their home. And they are, uh, you know, they were, they didn't have a way of getting it known about it or knowing about it. Mm. So we can, you know, and actually, what we're doing when we when we think about it, so they're generating reports on areas of deforestation, and they're doing that through mobile devices that are distributed to them. Um, and actually, what you're doing there is you're taking an indigenous person, you're giving him the power of the internet, uh, GPS, satellites. Um, the you know the, the, the mobile technology tracking devices and um, kind of multimedia capability, putting that in his hand, uh, so that they can then report on this stuff, and they've got a bit of power, they've got a bit of balance against the corporate who's who's building a load of um, who's deforesting for palm oil or whatever it would be. They can then go and use these devices to, um, you know, to, to kind of report on it. They usually report it to the media so that the media can sort of uh, put a spotlight on it. Well, I suppose it's also very helpful for evidence gathering because, you know, it's when exactly you, that. Yeah. it's exactly that. And they, and they just didn't have that power before. So it's really kind of, it's, it helps address that balance, that massive imbalance that you have. Across these, across people, and again, it's usually in the sort of southern, southern, southern hemisphere. It's the technology is quite cheap, and it's hugely empowering if it's used properly. And you can give those guys that power to do something about it, whereas they were kind of helpless before. And that's an example, I think, of 
where you can um, where you can harness the power of the devices because as I said before they don't cost a great deal of money and they're very very you, you know you, you often hear the thing about uh, you know the, the the computers that put man on the moon you know that you carry that around in your pocket now it is amazing and it's not expensive to produce the um, you know the software that gives that power, and it can be hugely empowering for um, for people in the sunset sunlands if it's used properly. You know, mm. and that's the um, that's where I would say the big opportunity is really is kind of empowering people to help them help themselves, kind of like Richard, thank you so much. It's been so interesting um, to hear about all, all the work of Three Sided Cube. Thank you very much for your time, Richard, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Data Optimist. I hope you will tune in again. Until then. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa.